Media are replete with stories of the next big bug. Books like The Stand and films like Contagion have relied on the fear of and fascination with deadly disease to draw audiences to them, while news outlets regularly feature stories about the latest strain of drug-resistant bacteria. Researching and tracking the next big bug is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are our regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Scott Evans, Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. He's also the director of GW's Biostatistics Center. Among his research interests are the prevention of the public health threat of antibacterial resistance. Scott, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Rosemary. Pleasure to be here. Just to get us rolling, how did antibacterial uh, uh, resistant uh, bugs become your research focus? Well, um, uh, when I first started my career, I, I was uh, doing a number of, uh, I was working in HIV, uh, doing clinical trials, evaluating interventions to treat HIV. Mm -hmm. And um, as time went along, uh, um, I saw a number of uh, sort of uh, documentaries on television and so forth that were describing uh, the rise of superbugs, uh, superbug infections. Uh, and uh, I quickly became interested in it. And back in um, 2011, uh, the NIH uh, Clinical Center actually experienced an outbreak of a, mm. of a superbug infection uh, that affected 18 patients. 11 of those patients uh, died. Um, and as a result, uh, the National Institute of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases uh, initiated a new uh, clinical uh, trial, clinical research network called the uh, Antibacterial Resistance Leadership Group. And um, I became a part of that group uh, as I had uh, uh, some clinical colleagues that were uh, sort of competing for this grant. And uh, I joined that team and uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to, uh, to, to get that grant. And uh, so we've been working on uh, this superbug infection problem uh, since uh, 2013. And um, uh, that's how I got, it, got started with it. So I, just to take us back just one step, how, how do you define a superbug? How, how do you know, you know, how do you know how many there are? Or what, what's the prevalence of this? I, I read in one of your papers, you reported estimates of like 25% to 75% of antibiotic use being unwarranted in acute care hospitals. So, you know, how do we, how do we know such percentages and what are these things? Yeah, um, so uh, the general term superbug uh, generally refers to uh, a bacteria that has become resistant to uh, antibiotics. Now, we've had antibiotic drugs around uh, since the mid-1900s, mm -hmm. and the idea behind antibiotics is they are able to kill uh, bacteria. Um, and this antibiotics are very, very powerful uh, and important part of our sort of medical armament. Um, you know, uh, antibiotics uh, really 
allow us to do many of the medical procedures that we that we do uh, on a regular basis. Um, you know, you, you need antibiotics if you're going to do chemotherapy for cancer, if you're going to do dialysis mm -hmm. for renal failure, if you're going to have neonate care or intensive care unit care, and various surgeries such as organ transplantation. Uh, anytime you do procedures like that, there's a risk of infection. And uh, um, what antibiotics do is help us either treat or prevent uh, those infections. Um, so the problem with with what happens, uh, what, what we have with the uh, antibiotic resistance is, is in many ways sort of a bacterial Darwinism, mm -hmm. that the, the, bacterial, the bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics or develop a resistance to antibiotics, those are the bacteria that live to, to uh, reproduce and, and, and spread. And so uh, we're sort of constantly in a cycle of uh, sort of bacterial Darwinism, and we come up with antibiotics that can fight those bacteria, but those bacteria are smart and eventually learn to become resistance to, resistant to antibiotics. Um, and uh, one of the challenges we're having right now is that um, although we have many, many antibiotics that have been uh, approved by regulators for use for, for many, many years. Um, those antibiotics are, uh, because they're in common use and, uh, and mm -hmm. the bacteria are figuring out how to become resistant to them, uh, what you really need is sort of a continual pipeline of antibiotics, mm -hmm. uh, new antibiotics mm -hmm. that, that, can, that can fight these uh, bacteria. And uh, the pipeline for antibiotic development has slowed. And... Um, there are many reasons for that, but um, but uh, now bacteria are several. There's several different types of bacteria. Some of the common ones you may have heard of, uh, you know, strep. Uh, the mm -hmm. strep, which you may hear about, strep throat is a bacteria. Uh, staph, uh, st staph aureus is a staph infection, is a bacteria. Um, uh, gonorrhea is a is a bacteria. Um, but there there are some very uh, 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 important bacteria that, um, in particular, have have developed uh, th that are particularly uh, difficult to treat uh, um, with with today's antibiotics, uh, things like Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter and um, CRE. And uh, what happens is you can get an infection uh, that is due to one of these bacteria, and those infections can occur in many different places in the body. You can get a lung infection, you can get a skin infection, you can get a urinary tract infection, uh, an intestinal tract infection, and so forth. And um, the hope is that we can use antibiotics to, to treat those infections. Uh, but as resistance uh, to these antibiotics develop, um, those types of infections become more and more difficult to treat. And, and so, um, we're looking for new ways to, uh, or, or looking to develop, say, new antibiotics or new uh, new ideas to, to fight these uh, bacteria that have become resistant. A couple of, uh, one, one particularly interesting new idea, and it's, it's, it's in the very early phases of, of uh, sort of development, is uh, antibiotics uh, generally are a drug. They're a chemical compound that is made up. Uh, um, uh, by humans, uh, we start to put chemicals together, and, and that's how we make antibiotics. Uh, but a, a, a sort of a, 
a new strategy that we're developing is uh, there are sort of natural uh, enemies of these bacteria, uh, viruses and other things. Um, and the idea is, can we actually use a virus, mm -hmm. a naturally enemy of the bacteria, to kill the bacteria? Mm -hmm. And so we actually fight one infection, a bacterial infection, with another infection by introducing a virus that that attacks and eats that bacteria. And um, there's been at least uh, anecdotal evidence of uh, some success with this strategy, but we need to study it, study it a more systematic way. Um, but there have been uh, a few people who have developed very serious infections, which uh, we've tried essentially all the antibiotics we have in order to treat those patients. They, they weren't able to respond to those uh, in a positive way. And so we went to, um, they, they tried, uh, these are called uh, phages, bacterial mm -hmm. phages, uh, viruses that kill, kill this bacteria. And, and so they tried phage therapy. And uh, there's been a number of cases where people have recovered uh, uh, using that uh, phage therapy. Can, so, you, can, yep. you, can you talk about uh, a little bit about the scope of the problem? I think I heard in an interview, or maybe it was one of your articles, that this affects, uh, this antibacterial anti resistance affects about 2 million people each year in the U.S., and there, there are 23,000 deaths. Yes, um, that's right. And uh, how are those numbers compiled? Where do we get those numbers? How do we yeah. know that? So the Centers for Disease Control this and mm -hmm. Prevention, uh, the CDC, uh, back in 2013, released a report that stated uh, that at least 2 million people acquire serious bacterial infections that are resistant to antibiotics uh, that were designed to treat those infections with uh, about 23,000 dying as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, that's in the United States. And in, now in the European Union, there's about 33,000. Uh, some new data suggested about 33,000 people die from these infections annually. Now, the CDC is due to come out with a new report this year, which will update those numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll be interesting to see how those numbers have evolved over the past uh, six years or so. Um, and uh, one of the big causes, as you, you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the concerns we have is that uh, there's a lot of um, sort of overuse or misuse of antibiotics, which uh, only uh, sort of adds to the problem. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of times uh, if a patient comes into uh, the emergency room with uh, sort of flu-like symptoms, for example, and maybe they have the flu. Well, the flu is a virus, and um, uh, antibiotics are are meant to treat bacterial infections, mm -hmm. not viral infections. And uh, so, if antibiotics were prescribed to treat the flu, um, first of all, the antibiotics are unlikely to have any positive uh, effects mm -hmm. of that, and they may even have some toxicities, um, and they potentially promote uh, promote the development of uh, resistance uh, uh, to these antibiotics. And so there's a concern that uh, there's a lot of overprescribing of antibiotics that um, now, now part of that is that we don't always know the uh, is if somebody comes in with a infection like 
symptoms, we don't always know immediately mm-hmm. what the cause of that infection is in terms of a vi- whether it's a virus, a bacteria, or something else. And um, uh, sometimes it, you know, we can run a test uh, to try to figure out uh, what what might be the cause of that infection. However, um, uh, the results of that test uh, can take, you know, three days to obtain. Uh, there are cases where we don't have that much time to wait around for three days to, mm-hmm. for those results mm-hmm. to come back. So we um, oftentimes uh, uh, doctors uh, treat immediately and um, uh, not wanting to wait for those uh, test results. Um, and, and there are both pros and cons to that. Obviously, if they do have a bacterial infection, you get faster treatment if you can treat immediately. Um, however, if they don't have a bacterial infection, then you're potentially promoting resistance and you're treating mm-hmm. someone with a with a therapy that's not going to help them and, and could indeed harm them in a, in a talk, uh, you know, give them, give them a, a harmful side effect uh, potentially. So, so another, another area of, of research in this, in this, uh, in this domain is uh, the development of diagnostics uh, that could get us information about whether this is a bacteria, whether this is a virus, uh, much, much quicker, and not only tell us uh, what what bacteria or what virus it is, but uh, can also test for um, how responsive uh that particular infection would be to specific drugs that we might try. And, and uh, so what we're hoping to do and what we're, we're, we are indeed testing now are diagnostics that may be able to get us this information perhaps within a, a couple of hours rather than say three days. Mm-hmm. You're listening that- to Stats and Stories and today we're talking public health and superbugs with George Washington University's Scott Evans. So Scott, let me just follow up on this idea of the, the diagnostics. So when you're when you're developing these procedures or evaluating these procedures, how how do you know they're any good? I mean, there there are lots of different criteria on which you'd look at that. So could you just give a a quick summary of of a couple of the criteria that you use to say if a diagnostic procedure works pretty well? Yeah, sure. Um, so in general, for diagnostics, uh, some of the basic evaluations uh, would consist of um, estimating. Uh, uh, things uh, such as sensitivity and specificity. So could you uh, could you just clar- sort of clarify sure. that for sort of a general listener? What do you, what do you mean by sensitivity or what do you mean by specificity? So, uh, sensitivity is uh, the probability of uh, a test being positive for a particular infection when indeed uh, the person is truly infected with that disease, mm-hmm. so has that disease. So it's the probability of the test being positive when you're disease positive. Specificity uh, is the probability of the test being negative when the, uh, when the person is disease negative. And so you would like both sensitivity and specificity to be very high. So that means a, a sensitivity being very high would mean that as I'm walking into the doc, as a, as a patient is walking into the doctor's office, they want to know that if I'm truly infected, what's the probability the test will actually identify me as infected? Mm-hmm. And that's sensitivity. Or if I'm truly not infected, uh, what's the probability the test will, will show that I'm not infected? And that's specificity. And I would like those uh, to be very, very high, both of those to be very, very high. Now, on the flip side, 
so that's what I'm interested when I'm walking into the doctor's office. Now suppose that I have the test and the test comes back and says, we believe the test uh, indicates that I'm positive for a particular disease. In that particular case, now what I would like to know is now since the test is positive, I would like to know the probability that I'm truly diseased. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I'm interested in if I'm walking out of the doctor's office, if you, you might imagine. And this is called predictive value, positive predictive value. Mm -hmm. So positive predictive value is the, is the probability that I'm truly diseased when, I, when uh, now conditional upon the fact that I've had a positive test. Or the negative predictive value is the probability that I'm truly non-diseased conditional upon now that I've had uh, a test that indicates I'm negative. And in order to calculate uh, both positive and negative predictive value, I need to have an idea about the sensitivity and specificity of the test. And I also need to know um, uh, the prevalence of the d disease. And um, through surveillance mechanisms, we may have some ideas about what the prevalence is, in which case I could use uh, Bayes' theorem to uh, calculate the positive and negative predictive value uh, of the test. Oh, that's, so great. I, that's helpful. Thank you. I'm imagining uh, some of the challenges in, that face you in your work. Maybe one of them would be, how do you explain your work to doctors that don't understand statistics in this work? And the other thing would be to journalists. So are there challenges uh, when someone who's a doctor is not sort of trained the way you are? Yes. Uh, and this is really an important uh, aspect of, uh, of our work, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the biggest challenges, I think, uh, for statisticians is how to communicate effectively with, uh, in my case, our, my clinical colleagues, my, my doctor colleagues mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, so the first, uh, the first element of that is not only getting them to understand me, but, but for me to understand them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they help me uh, sort of understand the medical problem at a deeper level and what would be useful for them as they think about how to treat patients and how to diagnose patients. And that helps me, that, that helps provide me a, a sort of a foundation or an understanding of, of what the critical needs are for, uh, for doctors who are trying to treat mm -hmm. and diagnose patients. And so, uh, you know, one key to that is that, uh, as I'm thinking about statistical concepts and they're thinking about medical concepts, um, we have to find sort of a common language mm -hmm. and they can't speak too technically for me and I can't speak too technically for them. We, we want to try to use uh, sort of general language for each other. Um, however, it also requires uh, both on my part and on their part uh, a little bit of learning about, so for, for me, I have to learn a little bit about the medicine. I have to learn about antibiotics and I have to learn about the, the different bacteria and the different types of infections mm -hmm. that people can get so that I can understand the problem at a deep level and so that I can communicate with, with doctors uh, about what I'm thinking and how do I describe uh, how we might design or analyze a study or how I how we interpret the 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 results of a study, and so this is a really important issue. Uh, 
and I think one of the sort of great challenges of our of our profession. Um, so even though I'm I'm not in you know a formal classroom, for example, uh, the in some ways as a statistician, I'm always teaching uh, or trying to teach people about uh, statistical concepts so that so that they can understand the results of various studies and um, uh, and and communicate with me to help help me understand mm -hmm. uh, wh what they're thinking. So uh, you know this this example of describing sensitivity and specificity and positive and negative predictive values a a, a good example of that. Yeah. Um, so it's very important. Uh, in 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 um, reading up on on your career, I, I came across the. Um, piece by GW announcing your um, taking over as director of the Biostatistics Center. And uh, towards the end of that piece, it mentioned that you felt like there needed to be more inter interdisciplinary work um, in this field. And I guess kind of coming off of Richard's question, um, given the work that you do, um, when you think about interdisciplinary sort of linkages and work that can sort of um, um, uh, you know, f broaden our scope of understanding. What what are you thinking about in relation to the to this? So, um, uh, I think it. You know, particularly when we think about the superbug uh, infection issue, it is a multidisciplinary mm -hmm. uh, effort. Obviously, there's. I interact a lot with uh, medical colleagues who understand these diseases, um, as you might. Have you know, as they as they think about treating patients or diagnosing patients, uh, we have laboratory colleagues, for example, who uh, collect specimens and they run various laboratory tests. Um, we talked about diagnostics, for example. So, uh, one of the strategies for evaluating or, or thinking about diagnostics is we we uh, evaluate the genetic profile of the bacteria. Mm. that uh, we find. And uh, if certain genetic traits are expressed, then what that tends to mean is that that bacteria is going to be resistant to certain types of antibiotics um, because of the way, the mechanism of which that particular, uh, particular antibiotic uh, works. So one of the ways we think about uh, sort of advancing the field in diagnostics is to get a better understanding of uh, the genetic profile of, mm -hmm. of various bacteria. And so we start interacting with uh, laboratory colleagues, uh, people working on big data problems and looking at the uh, genetics and genomics of both the bacteria, um, but also of uh, human genetics and, and human responses. Uh, that we might see, and how we can use that information to think about um, new strategies for how to treat or how to diagnose uh, disease. You know, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Yep, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I've I, I really appreciated kind of the, the, the light touch that you have in terms of uh, describing like randomizing Simon and Garfunkel to treatments as part of one of your <laughs> as one of your papers and and you know naming you know naming the trials I'm I'm sure you you are working really hard to get smart compass bed frame door radar, radar. I mean, yeah. there's you know I suspect that takes as much work as maybe executing some of these studies <laughs> but, but but what I wanted to ask you about yeah, it was this idea of drug comparison versus therapeutic strategy comparison 
I thought that was a really interesting idea. And could you could you kind of give a quick kind of overview or summary of that? Sure. Um, yeah, this is a uh, we uh, had a recently published paper. Uh, actually, the print version is just coming out uh, over the next week or so. Um, and so, as I mentioned. Uh, when describing the treatment of patients. If a patient comes into the hospital or maybe they're, they're in the ICU, um, there's really uh, sort of two, uh, well, let me back up a moment. Um, when, when you're treating patients for a particular disease, whatever uh, affliction they might have, that the decisions about how to treat that patient are it's not, a, it's not a single decision necessarily, that uh, in, in many ways the treatment of patients is dynamic. You, you make an initial decision about how to treat a patient, but then you see how the patient's doing, and they may be responding well, they may be responding poorly. You get more information about uh, how the patient is doing, and then with that information, you might make a, an adjustment to treatment. So what happens with uh, patients with infection there's really sort of two very uh, well-defined uh, treatment decision time points. Uh, the first time point is uh, what uh, uh, clinicians, infectious disease clinicians, called empiric therapy. That um, at, this is the time which uh, I haven't been able to run these laboratory tests yet, so I don't really know uh, what the bacteria is, or whether it's a bacteria, whether it's a virus, or and if if it is a bacteria, what type of bacteria it is, and I don't know the the profile about whether I could treat with uh, which drug I could treat it with. Um, so what I but but because some patients can't wait, you have to make an, an initial treatment decision about how to treat them, and. One option for, for that is maybe I don't treat them at all. Maybe I wait for specific information to come. But I, I may take a lab laboratory specimen, send it off to the lab, and but I may have to wait three days for, for that lab information to come back. So I make, uh, I make an empiric treatment decision at, when I first see the patient. Uh, then about three days later, I get back the laboratory information. And that laboratory information can tell me generally tell me uh, what the pathogen, what, what the offending pathogen is, what, what bacteria or virus is responsible for this infection, and uh, may also give me information about which drugs might be effective at treating that patient. So um, instead of studying, uh, and, and they, that second decision time point, the, they often refer the to this as a sort of definitive therapy. or uh, So we have these sort of two decision time points. Now, uh, typically in, in clinical trials, and most commonly in clinical trials anyway, um, we might randomize patients to one of two or more options and then evaluate uh, how effective and safe those options are by following the patients that are randomized into those uh, options and, and evaluating them. Um, but in this particular case, because uh, infections, uh, because there's these two time points uh, that are really critical at, for, for decision making, um, what we've done is basically said, well, let's study strategies of 
treatments rather than specific treatments. And what I mean by that is suppose I come in and a doctor doesn't know whether I would be susceptible or resistant to a particular drug, but he has to do something, he has to treat me now. Uh, three days later, we'll get some more information, but he, he has to make a decision now. Um, so unfortunately, we're, we're stuck in this situation where you, you sort of treat today and you diagnose tomorrow. Mm. And, mm. and um, so, so they start me out on a particular drug, uh, hoping that that might be the right drug. Three days later, uh, we get back information that tells me uh, from the lab uh, whether they believe that was a good choice or not, whether I f they believe I'll be susceptible to this drug or whether my infection will be resistant to this drug. And if I'm susceptible, then maybe I stay on that drug and, and uh, that looks like a good path to follow and I would go that route. However, if the lab comes back and says, well, uh, it looks like your, your infection is resistant to, the, to this drug, then they would make adjustments and say, well, listen, we have to change you to something else um, because it looks like you're resistant. Now, so what that means is that I'm studying a strategy of starting out with that drug, but the strategy allows for an adjustment if I get new information that suggests that an adjustment would be wise. And so instead of studying just one drug at a time, I study strategies of treatment that allow for adjustments as new information arises, such as new laboratory information that tells me whether I might be resistant or susceptible. Mm -hmm. and. Or if, or even just sort of clinical progress. If I'm, if I seem to be progressing in the right, right direction, then maybe you keep me on that therapy. If I'm, if I'm getting worse, then you, maybe you make a change and, and make an adjustment. Well, Scott, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Uh, it was my pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcast, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.